Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Paul Morales, and I'm so glad to be with Dr. Jill Strauss, one of the editors of Slavery's Descendants, Shared Legacies of Race and Reconciliation, a collection of memoirs of descendants of both enslavers and enslaved. Dr. Strauss teaches conflict resolution and communications at Borough of Manhattan Community College, CUNY, in New York. Dr. Strauss, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks so much. And you can call me Joe. Again. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, yes. So introducing myself. Um, well, I, and, I, um, and how I came to be a co-editor of Slavery's Descendants. Well, uh, back in 2014, which seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Um, I joined an organization called Coming to the Table. Coming to the Table is um, is an or- a national racial, um, we use the word reconciliation organization, and we should talk about what reconciliation means uh, or it doesn't mean um, in this context. And, um, and it's based at Eastern Mennonite University, uh, which is how I met you in the Summer Peace Building Institute there with the Center for Justice and Peace Building. Uh, uh, coming to the table is um, uh, the descendants of enslaved and enslavers, and um, I am not from either group. I joined in uh, 2014 when when an invitation was made to all those who are concerned about white privilege, um, the uh, the legacies of slavery, other res- other legacies of slavery, the school to prison pipeline, et cetera, and to come in as allies. And um, a few months, uh, about, I don't know, maybe a year later or so, um, at, a, at an online meeting uh, that we were having around writing, starting a writer's group, uh, just came out about having an anthology of collection of, of, of narratives by by different people in the in coming to the table and that would together tell a more complete story of our nation's history and the legacies of enslavement and how it is an underpinning of this nation um, and so since uh, com- um, coming to the table most uh, initiatives are co-led by a European American and an African American and I am a European American descent or European descent. Um, I partnered with a woman, uh, an African-American woman, a journalist named Dionne Ford, and together we worked with 25 uh, other members of Coming to the Table to uh, create this book, um, this anthology that we are really proud of. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your service. And I wanted to touch on um, what you said in page three on bridging disparate beliefs. And I know you've um, opened up that door. Uh, so how would you, what would you say to individuals and families who want to take the steps to um, getting connected with organizations like coming to the table? Mm. Uh Getting, that's the easy part. Uh, coming to the Table has a website. It's comingtothetable.org. Um, and um, joining, if you could see me, I would have my, I would have quotes up. Joining is as easy as um, submitting an online form that includes your email address. And uh, then you are added to the listserv. There's a Facebook page. There's a national gathering every two years. Um, and um, and you are welcome. Thank you. And the link in the episode notes. So if anyone is interested, they can click on that link to join. Um, I also wanted to talk about Dan Ford's introduction and um, also where you stated whether it's the shooting of unarmed black and brown people by police, the mass incarceration of people, or the 2016 presidential election in which the Ku Klux Klan endorses the winning candidate, present day racism is an outgrowth of the legacy of slavery. So at this time, this resonates very deeply. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to note on this matter, especially the time that we're in right now? Well, a lot has been said, has been said about it and continues to be said by people I think who can speak more knowledgeably, um, but I, I, I can just summarize what others have said and, and what I believe, uh, that the, this, the United States is created on, is, is built on enslavement and, um, and attempts to, to remove the peoples of this, the original peoples of this land, the indigenous peoples of this land. And um, so, and this continues to this day, at least in part because we still have the myths that, um, that, um, that just, just make invisible these stories that make the white Europeans uh, conquering an empty land. Um, people of color are other than us and below us, more like animals, and so therefore there is a justification somehow. Um, and I can continue. And a lot of these uh, these myths uh, continue to this day and um, are in inherent are in our systems um, and our structures in society and in our laws and these inequalities these prejudices are everywhere and, and until we begin to look at ourselves and our institutions more critically and uh, we cannot begin to make change and but that's change that is now right that uh, this this book the book came out in 2019 and it feels like a lifetime ago 
really, it just came out this time a year ago, May 2019. Um, and it feels like a lifetime ago. Because while we're dealing with the same issues, people, all kinds of people are talking about them in different ways. And that is so hopeful. That is so hopeful. And so, yes, it does resonate deeply. Yeah. For any the question. Thank you. And thank you for answering that. I, this leads into the next question on, on feeling connection. Um, if mm -hmm. one, um, I really appreciate what you said on, on page two. We are all slavery's descendants. And also later in the book on finding a sense of place and belonging. Um, so connecting those words and for one who may not um, be familiar, um, what might you say to one who, who doesn't feel that connection? So yes, and and um, I'm. I think it, it's part about it. Uh, those of us who are, are of European descent, um, you know, the, there's what's often said to uh, people of color. From again, from what they tell me, right? <laughs> what I understand, um, you know, why can't you just get over it? Why can't we just move on? Um, okay, or. The other one is, well, you know, I'm first generation, I'm second generation. You know, I'm not responsible for that. Um, it's not my fault. Okay. But what those of us of European descent have to look at is the privileges that we enjoy, regardless of how long our families have been in, this, in the United States. We benefit from the systemic injustice that this nation is built on. So, um, you know, I, as, as a European American, as a white middle-class woman, I can walk into a hotel anywhere in this country, probably anywhere in the world. I can walk into any hotel, uh, even if I'm not staying, whether or not I'm staying there, and ask for a free map, right? And I've done this. And I am very aware that somebody of color could not do this without being stopped at the door. You know, what are you doing here? Are you staying here? Um, how can I help you? You know, and, and that might seem like a, a small thing, but I think it's, it's indicative of all of the privileges that we have, whether it's um, our parents have advanced educations. And so it's more likely that our children will, will have advanced educations and be economically, economically more prosperous um, or have property. And property landholding is directly connected to, um, to uh, in, in higher economic uh, levels and and so on again others can speak about this more eloquently than i do or can uh, but it's it's the same idea that whether or not we our ancestors were directly part of enslavement that does not mean that we in this pre in the present those of us who are of european descent or who are called white do not benefit from the systemic injustice in this, that this nation is built on. And that is why we are all slavery's descendants, and that is why we all have work to do. Um, a sense of place, 
a sense of place and a, and a new belonging that comes out of a tangential, I would say a related issue. I'm also Jewish and not also Jewish. I am Jewish. <laughs> and um, so in some ways, in very small ways, I I feel some empathy. I feel a lot of empathy, I'll say, with African-Americans and people of color um, because I've had um, things said to me, derogatory things said to me, um, but I also uh, live in the world as a white, white middle-class person, um, an educated white middle-class person. And so I have both that privilege, but I also have experienced some, uh, some prejudice, nothing in the way that people of color do on a regular basis. I do not want, especially because I, as living in New York City, living on a, in a large metropolis on one of our coasts is very different as well. Um, so I don't want to imply in any way, shape or form that I live the same experiences. I don't, but I have some, some empathy for, for what the experiences are like. I can, I can get some idea of it from other places I've been. Um, and so that sense of place and of new belonging actually comes out of my visit to, uh, my, uh, my, grandfather's hometown in Germany, in southern Germany. It's a tiny town called Wieschenfeld, and there are maybe three streets. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But anyway, uh, what does still exist there um, is the Jewish cemetery, the extent Jewish cemetery. Um, and so I went to visit, and I write about writing about it in, in the book. It's sort of an afterword, uh, because I was inspired to do this as being, edit, uh, being co-editor of Slavery's Descendants. And it was it was something I never thought I would see my name on tombstones in a cemetery in Germany it was something I never thought I would see. And it turns out my my family on both sides of, of my father's family goes back in this town at least three hundred years, and so that gives me a sense of place and a belonging and a sense of I have some legitimacy here. I belong here too. Um, that I can understand African-Americans who are retracing their genealogy because it is all but invisible in many cases. They have the, the stories, the oral stories that are passed down in the family perhaps, but there isn't always that much. I'm, I'm generalizing in a lot of ways here. There isn't always that much that is written down documentation. Um, and so that's something else that comes up in the book where descendants of enslaving families, um, are the one, are often the ones who still have the wills, um, of their ancestors. And in those wills, often the enslaved people are named. And so this is one way for descendants of enslaved families, uh, enslaved people, excuse me, to find out the names of their ancestors. And this is, might be the only way, because even if we look on census data, um, it will only say, you know, the number of enslaved people um, it, that were held there, or like the number of men and the number of women, the number of children, but it won't necessarily name them. But in the wills, they are named because uh, the, the head of the family, um, a 
upon his death, bequeaths wills of his enslaved people to his children, to his wife, and and so on. And so that's the place that they are named. Um, and so one of the the efforts that these descendants of enslavers are doing now is making this information uh, visible, making it easily accessible um, through archives, online, etc., to so that descendants of enslavers of enslaved can then access that material and try to trace back their families. And it's an important thing that they're doing. And that's because it is about a sense of belonging. It is about a sense of place. It's about, yes, I belong here too. I can trace my family back like you can. And we are here and we have been here. I agree. And I, I um, that we can all find meaning in our shared legacy, like you note on page 227. Um, I also wanted to move to Sharon Leslie Morgan's story. Um, it's a very emotional reading, um, and she touched on redlining. And I'm um, not sure if um, some of our audience might be familiar with this, but I was wondering if you could explain this and how it still pains the U.S. today. Yes, I, I just wanted to add something from the previous question that I wanted to say that I almost forgot. Um, I think it comes back to um, say what we're hearing now when people say say their names and they say Sandra Bland and um, and every all of, now I'm also blanking on all of these names, which is terrible. Um, but when we, it's because these names get forgotten. And it's a way of reminding all of us. So naming is remembering. Right. Okay. So I have, if we have to do that part again, we, we can, and I'll do it better. So um, redlining, right. So redlining is um, an ingenious, insidious way of um, designating areas in a community. It, usually urban, but not only, um, to ensure that only um, white people live in these places. Um, or, yes, or only black people in some areas and, and so on. It's, 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 a, it's a kind of seg segregation, of course. It is absolutely segregation, but it is never outright segregation. It's never transparent segregation. Um, you won't ever see, you know, um, uh, a, a sign for a black waiting blacks waiting room and a white waiting room, for example, or a water fountain that says whites only, another waterfall water fountain that says blacks only. But you see, it's usually drawn in red and it's drawn on uh, the city maps. And um, yeah, it's a way of keeping some people out, some people in. Um, it's also a way of controlling who, who goes to which schools, how much money is, is, um, is in, the, in each of these areas, is dedicated to each of these areas, and it also affects our voting. So it's also, we could also think of it as gerrymandering. Anything that controls, uh, that, that controls political power, in effect. Thank you. Um, and speaking on education and, and 
um, effects on on that. I was reading Lanier Mamache and Westrick's truth-telling stories, mm-hmm. capturing ignored or falsified U.S. education um, in regard to U.S. history and um, in that slavery. Um, so what might you say to elementary and secondary school educators today in regard to teaching their students on the truth of slavery? And how might um, this source be of assistance to them? The, the source meaning slavery's descendants. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think what's um, invaluable about slavery's descendants, what I'm most proud of, is that these all of these nonfiction essays are easy, you know, they're, they're not, there's not a lot of um, hard language, right? They're, e- they're easy to read. They're good stories and they're true. Um, and I, I think all educators benefit and our students primarily write for our students, uh, benefit from primary source material whether it's these, um, these memoirs or um, showing wills, um, they're, they're not hard to find anymore online, or census data. Most states, but particularly in the South, have um, put online their census data from when they first started collecting um, that in the, the United States first started um, census, census, which is 1870, if I'm not mistaken. So we can actually use primary source data to come to understand better the history of this nation. And um, in, um, our, the textbooks, I mean, their textbooks are convenient. Um, it's a way of controlling what material is covered across the nation, but it's also controlling that narrative. And it's not always a true, uh, it's not always an accurate, I'm going to use a different word than true, an accurate narrative uh, of, of our history. And so by using, it's more work to pull it together. Uh, you know, online articles from a period, uh, newspaper articles, I mean, a lot of that is available um, online now and can be downloaded often for free, not always, but often. Think about the money that each school spends on textbooks. Um, and once you ha- once the teacher has it, the educator has it, then it's, they have it and can use it to teach critical thinking. And uh, I think that will serve our students um, in the long run, not just a more accurate history, but a critical, cri- developing their critical thinking um, because we need that desperately in a nation that is so much online now and uh, believing what we read and we can't anymore. We have to learn how to question everything, um, to, to check our sources, to um, confirm information, because if we don't, it's so easy to be led astray. Yeah, I hope that teachers are that. Advice. Um, is there anything else? I I hope that I haven't. And I know there are so many wonderful memoirs and stories, and I didn't want to leave out anyone's voice. Is there anyone who comes to mind that um, I may have left out? Who you would like to to talk about? Um, I, I, I the 
the way the, the way we affectionately refer to them is the Kilby sisters, because they think of themselves as, as sisters. But in in fact, they are related through slavery. Um, Phoebe Kilby is European American. Betty Kilby is um, um, African American descent. Um, in fact, Betty Kilby and Phoebe Kilby share an enslaver's DNA. So we call those linked, linked descendants. They are linked by slavery. Um, and they found each other um, online. Um, the story, that story is here in the book. It's the only memoir we have where um, co-authored by the, these two women. Um, and it's, it's an important story that they tell about um, also, they're talking about reparations as well, um, and um, and so that's that's and how Phoebe has found a way to um, to to do something for Betty's family um, that Betty's family can accept, also, right? So uh, we it's not just about offering reparations. Are the reparations what the 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 family or the people is that what they want is that what serves them best right so there's all of this that goes into reparations it's not it's not a one uh one way thing way serves all say it that way um um you also when when you sent me your questions in advance you asked um if there would be another if if there would ever be a volume two i guess we would call it um and I think it's a great idea. <laughs> it's not good. Well, um, I think it's for somebody else to do, right? It doesn't have to be the same people. I hope that um, some others at coming to the table um, are inspired to uh, to put together another anthology. Um, a lot of our, a lot of the members are authors and they've written their own memoirs, like a, a full book or their poets. Um, but I hope that somebody else will will take take that on because um, you know there are more stories to collect and they are important. They are important to have. And maybe now that this first one is out and and people have an idea of what it what it is and what it could be, but you know how the individual stories coming together create something larger and greater than the individual stories alone. Um, we'll see that this is something that can be done. And done well. Yes, and it was done very well. And I would love to hear it on audio to hear the storytelling. That's, yeah, that's a great idea, Audrey. We never thought of it. It's a brilliant idea. So, so um, uh, yeah, I have to figure out about that. But it, it's a great idea. It really is. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Is and there- this opportunity. Thank you for, um, for inviting me. Oh, of course. I'm so glad that you're here. And, um, and I know that um, it's a very difficult time and you have a very busy schedule. Um, so I really appreciate um, you visiting us here today, um, coming for this interview on slavery's descendants, shared legacies of race and reconciliation. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, being on New Books Network and History Podcast. I really enjoyed our time. So did I. Thank you so much for this invitation. Thank you. Thank you.